0: Hi, uh, my name is Jennifer Hellman, and that was actually a good presentation to piggyback off of because, as you stated, conservation in freshwater habitats is becoming an increasingly important topic um, today. And I'll just kind of be expanding on that and possibly taking a slightly different turn um, using the research that I've done this past year at Messiah College as my senior research project, and together with my advisor, Jeff Erickson we basically looked at macroinvertebrate communities and how they change um, as you have different types of streams coming together. First of all, why macroinvertebrates and exactly what are they? Well, macroinvertebrates are basically animals without backbones. They dwell primarily in aquatic plants, sediments, or rocks. Um, and they have encompass a wide variety of organisms from everything to aquatic worms and aquatic insects, to crayfish and, as we just stated, mollusks. Um, And they're very important for study for several reasons. First of all, they have a nearly ubiquitous distribution. You can find them in freshwater habitats, saltwater habitats, temporary or permanent um, aquatic habitats, as well as very clean habitats and very polluted habitats. And that's one of the important things for studying them is that you can use, you know that they're gonna be there even if the area is very polluted. So basically you can evaluate the type of habitat and the health of the habitat based on what's there and also in what numbers they are there. Additionally macroinvertebrates occupy a wide variety of trophic levels. So some serve as predators um, for other smaller macroinvertebrates. Some eat the organic material on the bottom. Some eat algae and all serve as prey for larger organisms. So they're basically intermediates in the food chain. So Changing the community or eliminating the community in general would really disrupt the, flow, the natural flow of the ecosystem. So basically, the premise was: what are the potential factors that are affecting the communities, and you know, in order to prevent changing them? Because freshwater habitats are un- constantly undergoing different changes, whether you're doing bank stabilization or having. Um, the land cover being removed, or, you know, even changing the flow of the stream. So knowing what factors potentially affect the structure of the community can help you understand what conservation measures you can take to, you know, still maintain the quality of the habitat that you're trying to preserve. So nothing has really been done on what happens when different types of streams intersect. Um, Basically, all the information that we have is... um, slightly irrelevant. But other studies have shown that velocity is very, the stream flow is very important, especially in habitats that are either temporary or have dams. And um, the change in velocity can often eliminate some of the less tolerant orders, whereas allow the more tolerant orders to continue to thrive. Um, And in all types of habitats, substrate seems to be an important indicator of what you'll find there. Um, Some organisms prefer more of a sandy, gravel-based substrate because they need the substrate to be able to build their protective cases, whereas others require a large interstitial space um, in gravel to be able to have an oxygen exchange, or habitat, or even a food source. Um, And additionally, algae can make a big difference whether or not you have too much algae, so that prevents the prevalence of organisms that perhaps require bare bedrock to grow, or whether you um, just have the right amounts that can provide a good protection from the flow of the stream as well as a good habitat and food source. But many scientists obviously think that it's a combination of many of these environmental determinants, you know, whether it's the aforementioned or in addition depth or chemical um, composition of the water. So basically, how how do these factors change as you have different stream types? Well, streams differ, limestone and freestone streams differ primarily in three ways formation, underlying bedrock, and the water source. Um, Limestone streams basically come from an underwater source, so they tend to form very quickly um, from a spring. And because their primary water source isn't from rainfall or um, water going into the stream, they tend to have minimum temperature and um, flow fluctuation, and they usually have a year round cool temperature and they have to have a high alkalinity of over 140 milligrams per liter, which basically allows them um, to be highly buffered and to have a slightly more basic um, acidity, or more basic pH, because you have the weak acid reacting, and um, they like reacting with the rocks and creating chemicals for release into the water. Um, contradictory to that, freestone streams often are slow forming, and tend to start as a small trickle and go into a wide river, and they, since their water comes primarily from rainfall, um, they are widely fluctuating. And since their rocks are more resistant to chemical and mechanical weathering, they don't have the chemicals coming off the rocks, so they tend to be slightly more acidic and less fertile. However, they do tend to have a higher diversity, especially in, wild, um, in aquatic insects. So that's just some of the natural differences between the stream types. So basically, the purpose of this experiment was twofold. First of all, it was to look at whether or not there are significant differences in the communities between limestone and freestone streams. And then, if there were, um, what factors are the primary determinants of this change? Now, we had two primary sites, and for the purpose of this talk, i will be focusing mostly on the second site. But the first site um, was at the Yellow Breaches. Um, It took place right on campus um, in Grantham. And the Yellow Breaches is a freestone stream but it's limestone influenced and Trout Run came into the site was where Trout Run came into it, which is a Freestone Stream. But the second site was at Coover Park, which is only a few miles away um, from the first site in Dillsburg. And Dogwood Run runs through the park, which is a limestone stream. And then Dogwood Run is actually tributary of the uh, Yellow Breaches, but at one point a sandstone stream enters it. And then the streams at this site are rather small and they're only a couple meters apart. Um, but Um, As far as looking at the sites, um, we basically had 10 10 different sites. Um, Four were downstream of where the two streams intersected. Three were in the limestone stream and three in the sandstone stream. And then each site was progressively 10 meters further um, from the mixing zone. And we did basically look at three things um, when we were collecting our data. First was a simple physical stream assessment. So looking at Velocity and depth and just taking um, an average at each site and then looking at substrate, both through estimating percentages of each type of substrate present as well as measuring the rocks themselves. And then finally, just looking at conductivity. And then we also took water samples um, and brought them back to the lab and just used a spectrometer to analyze nitrate and phosphorus levels and then burette titrations to do chloride alkalinity alkalinity hardness and calcium hardness. But the main part of the experiment was the macroinvertebrate sampling. Um, so samples were taken from each site um, at, diff- at several different points within each site um, and then classified to the genus level. And basically analysis was run on that. Uh, we looked at correlations between what we found with the macroinvertebrate data to the chemical and the physical data um, looking at statistical significance as well and then using some, several freshwater indices to also evaluate the data. Um, richness being just the number of, spe- number of genera present. Um, EPT looks at the number of genera present within the, most, the three most sensitive orders, which are Hominoptera, Phocoptera, and Tricoptera. And then looking at Shannon's diversity index, which looks at species richness and evenness. And then finally, Hilsenoff's biotic index looks at pollution levels and um, tolerance levels of the specific organisms. So, um, what did our data tell us? As predicted, the chemical differences were significant in four out of the six things that we tested. Um, alkalinity hardness, calcium hardness, and chloride were all significantly higher in limestone streams, which is um, what the, data, the background research, of course, told us. Um, and then chlor- or nitrate and phosphorus levels were both within healthy range, but they were rather homologous between the, all the sites. And then the physical data um, was interesting. Velocity, discharge, and depth were all significantly different between the sites. Um, and velocity obviously increased as you went from limestone to sandstone streams. And discharge um, also did, which is obviously very similar to velocity being um, the area times the velocity. And the depth also was significant, but it's interesting to note that it was rather homologous between the limestone and the sandstone streams, perhaps a little bit higher in the sandstone streams. It was actually much much deeper in um, the mixing site. And then I think I just want to note that the data from our first site actually showed the opposite trends in the physical data. Um, Chemical data was significant at both sites, but it was actually exactly opposite um, from this site to the last site in the fact that uh, velocity and depth were not significant, discharge was not significant. However, some of the substrate did come back as significant, particularly the occurrence of cobble-based substrates. So it's just interesting to note that the physical um, significant differences were not consistent between the two different sites. And then, so just looking at general trends, what we found at this site was sandstone, the sandstone reverse, um, seemed to have a higher velocity and discharge, was slightly deeper, and had slightly more of a cobble boulder-based substrate, whereas limestone had a higher conductivity, higher um, chemical levels, as well as more of a gravel-based substrate. And then these don't really matter much unless there was actually a significant difference in the types of organisms present. And fortunately, um, there were, it wasn't widespread, it wasn't across every order, but um, epheminoptera in particular showed a significant difference um, between the sites. You can see the numbers up there, um, and epheminoptera, that's not surprising considering it's one of the most sensitive orders, and it's usually one of the first orders to show um, a reaction to a change in an environment, and not only was the order significant, but also several of the keystone species within the order, including femorella, were also um, significant, and just as you can see. Um, they're much more prevalent in sandstone streams, which is also predicted, considering sandstone streams usually have a higher prevalence of aquatic insects. And also in addition to this, the first site showed the same trend as well as some other keystone species were also significant in the differences. And just to show you a couple trends, even though not all the orders showed significant differences, they did show significant correlations. The numbers that are present are the ones that are significant. Um, between the, the chemical and the physical data, and just looking at Plecoptera and Epheminoptera, seeing how they are correlated with the factors that are indicative of sandstone streams, so negatively correlated with high chemical values and positively correlated with the velocity. Um, whereas Diptera, which is a more tolerant species, or in more tolerant order rather, shows the opposite trend. Um, and not only were there significant significant differences in individual orders, individual genera, but um, you can also see the trend in the feeding groups. And it's important to note that this data is not significant, um, it's just a trend and hopefully, with a few more samples, we can determine whether or not that actually is significant or not. Um, but you can just see how the shift in the feeding groups changes as you go from limestone to sandstone streams um, with a collector-gatherer feeding group very dominant in the limestone streams and shifting more to uh, um, a scraper feeding group. So Just noting that, you know, not only do you have specific organisms that are changing, but just the composition of the community and what that looks like in the ecosystem is changing as well. And just, again, looking at the correlations with the physical and chemical data, you can see that the collector-gatherer groups are correlated with the factors that are also correlated, um, also associated with the limestone streams, and the scrapers show the opposite trend. And then finally, I just wanted to point out some of the indices that we ran, um, and just looking at, the only ones that were significant in this were the HBI. And it's important to note that for richness, EPT, and Shannon's index, um, higher numbers tend to denote denote a healthier stream, whereas in HBI, higher numbers um, tend to denote a more polluted stream. Um, So it would appear in this that the free stone stream, the sandstone stream, is, is fairly significantly more healthy than the limestone stream. However, that's not necessarily the case. Um, the problem with these indices is although they can show certain trends and really show how you know, the number of species that you have there are changing, it's not necessarily indicative of whether or not the stream is healthy because a lot of these indices aren't really suited particularly for limestone streams. And so actually my advisor is trying to devise an index that takes into account the natural differences between freestone and limestone streams um, so that you know data like this where it appears that you know the limestone stream must be incredibly like much more unhealthy is is not actually the case so trying to portray that data more accurately and then just looking at um, the indices in comparison to the the feeding groups again you can see that trend where the collector gatherer um, has the, the lower EPT and the lower Shannon's and the higher HBI is correlated with the limestone streams and the opposite trend in some of the other some of the other groups. So, and again, Shannon's richness and, and EBT also are negatively correlated with the conditions in the limestone streams. So just connecting on a couple of different levels, the data that we found, just the trends um, in the chemical and physical data and some of the statistical significance that we found. But um, much of this data is still is still preliminary and still very much needs additional support um, particularly in regards to the physical data that we found and finding contrasting significance in the physical data, wondering um, you know, whether or not that means it can be eliminated or um, whether or not that we need to further consider it as a significant cause. I mean, obviously the chemical data stays significant and can be probably contributed as, as a factor um, contributing to this change. But more testing needs to be done at the sites that we already have. And we are also looking at a site where two free stone stream streams coming together. just so seeing if, you know, when two, you have two streams that are alike and possibly not having that chemical difference, whether or not you still get the change in the, in the macroinvertebrate community and whether or not you get the, the physical changes as well. And then also examining other factors um, such as algae um, and land cover that can be, very significant when you're looking at macroinvertebrate communities and that wasn't so much a factor in the first site as much as the second site where the limestone stream had much more land cover much more algae growth so looking at that and then also further examining um, substrate and trying to find a better way in which we can analyze that data and i just wanted to thank um messiah for just making this possible and then also for my advisor who was very much a help in this process.
1: you um,
0: actually the well basically according to EPA, it's as long as um, you take one net and take several spots within each site, usually it's about five spots within each site, and as long as you're having the same person do it, sometimes the size of the sample does greatly vary based on the substrate present, how easy it is to obtain the macroinvertebrates, but EPA protocol is basically that if you have a consistent um, collection method, that the variation in your sample size or in what you're getting is due to the actual environment and not in the collection protocol.
2: that your advisor was thinking about some, um, you know, creating a, a synthetic or an alternate, mm-hmm. um, do you have any thoughts as to what, you know, you think should go into um, either based upon the, this particular study or other work, how you would create an alternate index?
0: Well, I think the importance of the alternate index is very much in the sense that Um, you look at these indices and you get the results back, and you're not looking at the fact that, naturally, the more sensitive orders aren't really present in limestone streams. And that's just due to a lot of the chemical um, composition that you have of the water, as well as, you know, the substrate that tends to be present in those streams. So, you know, you look at that data and it seems that it's really unhealthy, but it's actually not. And so, really focusing on, I guess, changing um, giving different organisms different values, um, and realizing that you know those values change based on whether or not you have a limestone stream or whether or not you have a free stone stream and so not giving so much weight to the more sensitive orders because you're not just looking at pollution, you're looking at natural differences as well. So I guess if, does that answer your question? Healthy? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I think it, it really depends, and that's a lot contributing to stream health. So, you know, depending on where your pond is, do you have, you know, land cover is also is often helpful in trying to reduce the, run- the amount of runoff that you have going into the pond, whether that's from pesticides, from, you know, the grass around, or, or if there's farms around it. So eliminating some of the runoff so you don't get excess chemical levels. Um, as far as, as high chemical levels in in natural habitats, that's fine. But you know, high chemical levels due to you know organic waste and otherwise, and and also making sure that a lot of those um, a lot of those streams and ponds and stuff can also have such high nutrient loads that they get a lot of of algae growth, a lot of growth that can really inhibit the growth of like the, the ability for other organisms to thrive. So just making sure that. You know, those nutrient loads stay in balance and that the plant growth stays in balance and just making sure that nothing is so overpowering that you can't have growth and room for other organisms. And the
1: type of rock system you use, is
0: that also? It would just, I mean, I guess it just depends on what you have as a habitat because, you know, different organisms are going to grow regardless of whether you have boulders or you have sand. It's just... it's going to be different. There's still going to be growth, there's still going to be organisms, they'll just be different. Well I think I think a lot of the larger issues go back to, you know, how we're changing the environment and how we're we're you know, molding it to fit our needs instead of allowing, you know, us to to work around what already exists. So, you know, having the expectation that we can come in and, and change a stream, change you know, change the banks, change the way it flows is kind of an immature assumption because you don 't realize that you know one change can affect something else can affect something else can affect something else until you have the entire ecosystem is completely different so looking at that larger picture and how are we using you know our land, how are we even having our like how are we even planning our conservation measures to account for for the organisms that are organisms that are present and and knowing what their needs are um, and knowing that I guess Looking, knowing what factors would affect them knows how like, we can help figure out how, what implications our, our actions are going to have. So I guess as far as climate change, um, it might not have as much relevance, but in, in land use and in conservation implications, I think that it can be highly relevant um, if you use it the right way. I mean, I think that you bring up a good point. Those are hard choices. How do you how do you balance what we need versus what they need? But I think it starts with knowing that you can't you can't find that balance until you know what's out there, and until you know what's present, you can't understand what you're giving up and what you're you might be destroying or, or might be compromising or even what you might be saving. Um, so I think my answer to that would be it starts with knowledge and starts with information, and you know. Um, at some point, it always does come down to priorities, and who knows what those priorities are? And those priorities can be different to every person. It can be, you know, government or money, or you know, some people, you know, value the ecosystem. But I think that it would be a shame to to not know what you have and be destroying the whole thing. Where if if something must be destroyed, and it's destroying it only in part, and, and knowing that it can still recover, as opposed to damaging it beyond the ability to be repaired. (laughs)
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>